morning. Those of you that know me, uh, I'll try to keep my uh, enthusiasm level to around nine. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, to calm my nerves, let's start with a prayer. Please, please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for those things that while we slept, you did for us that we don't even know. I thank you for this place, St. Paul's Church, Lord. A church with vision. A church with people whose hearts are set on fire for your truth. Lord, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is great to be back. It is great to be back. They let me back. So it's... (laughs) It was nice. Uh, Trip and I have been talking uh, behind the scenes, and we are both convinced of the importance of St. Timothy's church plant, the church plant that St. Paul's uh, sensed a few years ago and then sent out, uh, the importance of these two churches, these two brides of Christ, staying connected to one another. And so in an effort to try to help that, Trip and I are intentional about preaching in both places, inviting John and Tyler over to preach at St. Timothy's, and then doing other things together, maybe men's ministries and women's ministries. I know we have a few of our ladies who are going to join St. Paul's Women on an upcoming Friday for a new series, and it sounds like you've got exciting things coming up in the fall, and I hope you'll uh, welcome us back. There'll be lots of us coming. We're actually going to do, I don't want to steal your thunder, but there'll be a joint service at the end of the summer. I'm stealing his thunder. To kick off, to, yeah, here I am, to kick off uh, y'all's fall program in both churches, St. Timothy's Church and St. Paul's Reformed Episcopal Church. We worship at the, at the bequest of an all-black, uh, African-American, Reformed Episcopal Church. They, uh, they had a building, and they invited us to worship on Saturdays, and so we worship on Saturday nights. They worship on Sundays, and occasionally we get together, like we did yesterday for the food program, thanks be to God and to y'all. We, uh, we come and get groceries with you, and then we distribute them out there, way out there in Cane Bay. And I tell you, it, I feel like I'm in a witness relocation program. I feel like I have... I feel like I've, I've narked on the mob or the mafia, and they've taken my identity away, and they've moved me out to Arizona to this community that's growing, you know, and they're putting fake cactus everywhere, and I, I walk around with my dog, and my whole 40 years of my past is gone, and I'm over there with people from Cincinnati and, and Philadelphia and all these other strange places, and uh, nobody knows anything about my past, which is probably good, probably good. So y'all are having a, a, a series on Galatians, and there's the title, or at least what I felt like the Lord was wanting me to say uh, to my brothers and sisters this morning, uh, that question of righteousness, our own righteousness, stirring up in ourselves righteousness. For example, you made it here this morning. Righteousness, check that off. For example, some of you are actually going to put money in the basket. Righteousness, check that off. Some of you serve, some of you pray, some of you do all kinds of things for the church. God bless you, keep it up. But that's a lot of times our self-righteousness. What's got Paul so peeved, I want to use a stronger word, but I'm in church, what's got Paul so mad in Galatians this morning is an issue of faith, not of our own righteousness. Not of our own righteousness. And I had to ask myself as I was reading these three lines and preparing to pray, I mean, come on, Paul, what are you so mad about? It's only a little bit of hypocrisy, it looks like, on Peter's you know, on Peter's hand. He, he's, he's done something that looks, looks slightly hypocritical. 
And haven't we all, if we're honest with ourselves, done something at times in the church that's slightly hypocritical? Haven't we changed our minds? You know, we were adamant about child baptism. And then we had our minds changed. We're like, okay, let's get our grandchild baptized. Or, or maybe even bigger or deeper things. But we've all, we've all, I think, be accused of being hypocrites. And so what is Paul so mad about? Did you hear what he said? I opposed him to his face. For you young people, that's, I got up in his business. Peter, I got right in his face and I told him off. And did you notice he doesn't call him the name Jesus gave him? His name originally was Cephas. He was Cephas. Jesus meets him and he says, nope, from now on you're Peter. And I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. And the gates of hell will not prevail against you and the church. You're Peter. And so Paul, who's all up in his business this morning, if you heard him, is calling him Cephas. He's provoking him. It's almost like he's taking his three fingers and tapping on his chest. Cephas, you Jew. You're a Jew, Cephas. And that's what we're going to get to today. We're going to get to why Paul is so angry. But I want to say, I think we've all failed. I think we've all been in Peter's place. Curcio, I was, I was very active in the Curcio community. It was great to see Carol out there with her table. Curcio, every week when you get together with brothers and sisters and do what they call a reunion, there's actually a place in there where you can discuss your apostolic failures. What apostolic successes have you had? What apostolic failures? Well, this seems like, on the surface, just an apostolic failure. Just an apostolic failure. If you don't remember anything about what I said this morning, I want you to remember, because this is a teaching series, what I believe the two most important things about the book of Galatians are. You ready? First, the book of Galatians bears testimony to the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life and the experience of the early church. It is God's Spirit poured out on those people who trust Jesus that makes someone a child of God and therefore part of the one people of God. God's Spirit poured out to you and me in this room is the thing that makes us children of God, full stop. And secondly, the thing that's got Paul so mad this morning, and it's what he's confronting throughout the whole book, is that that Spirit in us is the only sign we need. We don't need anything else. We don't need circumcision. We don't need the Torah. We don't need to keep kosher meals. Those things are fine and they're outward symbols, but the sign of following Jesus, the sign of being a Christian is this Holy Spirit in your heart. Paul will say later, my heart has been circumcised. Imagine taking a knife and cutting into your own flesh. That's the experience Paul's had. His heart has been radically changed. And it's the only new sign that a person who follows Jesus needs. It's what Pastor Lifridge, the uh, African-American preacher from our other church out there, says all the time in Bible study. If you're not busy one Wednesday night, it's a good old-fashioned Southern Bible study out there at St. Timothy's. I'm not trying to get you to join our church, but come listen to Pastor Lifridge teach, and then if you've got another week, come back and listen to me. The difference is astounding. (laughs) It's amazing. He gets, on a good night, about two verses covered, and I get, on a good night, um, six, six to eight. But, I mean, he's enthusiastic, and he he teaches in a way that um, it stirs you. But this is what he says week in and week out. This is what Paul would want you to know. If Paul came storming in the door right now, he wouldn't want to talk about the Carolina baseball game this afternoon. He wouldn't want to talk about high school graduation. He wouldn't want to talk about anything but Christ, Christ crucified, Christ risen from the dead, and Christ coming again. He is annoying with this. It's all Paul wants to talk about is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The truth. 
He calls him the truth. We heard it today. Jesus is the truth. Pastor Lifebridge would say it this way. Hey, folks, if you've got Jesus on the inside, if the Holy Spirit is in you and your heart has been circumcised, then you ought to look and act different on the outside. You don't look and act different on the outside so that you get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you begin to act peculiar, as we like to say out there. We're peculiar people. We've got all kind of little bumper sticker expressions at St. Timothy's. Another one is, we're not done yet. Because every week we have a problem. We have music problems, we have air, we have building. And so when somebody comes up and says, you know, your music, and I'm like, yeah, I know, but we're not done yet. So it's a way of deflecting people in love. But, but Jesus on the inside, you look different on the outside. And I have seen people here at St. Paul's who behave like this. I'll give you a quick story. 15 years ago, before these buildings were built, Will Riley, I see you, and a few others, we had a meeting and um, we met over in, in the house that John uh, Scott now lives in. And the meeting was chaired by this professional fundraiser. And so we were excited to hear how we were going to raise the money to build these glorious buildings that we're sending in, this one in the, stu- in the children's building. And so the fundraiser started off telling us oh, how it was going to happen and how God was going to bless us and how everything was going to work out. And then he said these two things that caused all of our knees to begin to shake. The first thing he said was, okay, so what you're going to do is go out in teams of two, because that's very biblical, and you're going to sit in people's living rooms, and you're going to ask these people for big gifts. You're going to go to the big donors, the heavy hitters in the church, sit there in their living room and look at them and say, we really need you to give $100,000 to $150,000. Exactly. That's what we all did. We were paralyzed. I thought, I'm not going to Dr. So-and-so or attorney. I know I'm not doing that, and I'm a salesman. Anyway. He got done with that, our heart rate was up, we were all sweating, and he said this, which made it worse. He said, and of course we're expecting those of you in the room to be part of our big gifts givers. It got really quiet then. (laughs) Most of us were like, well, we're gonna pray about that. (laughs) Which is what good Christian people do when they don't wanna say no at the moment. You know, they go, we're gonna pray about that. And then you hope the person that's asked you, will you be an usher? Let me pray about that. And, And then you hope he never asks you again. So we were all of that posture where we were gonna pray about this. Anyway, one guy, Milton Thomas, and I called him and verified this. Milton Thomas went, I'll do it. I'll give 50 grand. And we were like, yay, Milton's going to give 50 grand. Thank God it's not me. <laughs> we got done. A couple other people, I think, said they were going to give money. And we were walking out in that parking lot right over there. And Milton looked at two or three of us and said, I don't know why I did that. <laughs> and we, we were gathered around and we were like, we don't know either, but you did it and we heard it. So we got 50 grand, right? Well, we got 50 and we're getting ready to go. Milton Thomas was having his heart circumcised. He was having his heart changed. The people whose names are on these plaques, I see one of them sitting here. They've had their heart changed. The money doesn't become something that they do or earn. The money becomes this gift from God and they turn around and they give it back to God. Their heart has been radically changed. Paul's heart was changed for three reasons. The first was that this thing he received, this revelation, this apocalypto for the Greek, was directly from God. It was not from man. Tripp didn't call me and say, Gary, let me tell you all about the Diocese of South Carolina. You need to know this. Okay, Tripp, thanks. No. Paul, who had grown up in the church, who had learned beyond his years, who had been advanced, you've heard it earlier in Galatians, this guy got a phone call from God. He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus speaks to him, and it's a revelation from God. That's the number one reason his heart's been changed. And the number two reason is this thing that occurred, this revelation, this apocalypto, changed him like nothing else had. He had memorized the law. He had memorized the books of the Bible. He had done everything possible 
to be a holy and self-righteous person. And he had never experienced change like he did when the voice of God spoke to him. And the third thing was, his message, which he got directly from God, was the same message as the apostles had heard. These men and women, like we heard this morning, who had been following Jesus, they got the same message. Paul didn't call them and say, hey, let me check this out with you and make sure it's right. Actually, we read earlier in Galatians, Paul goes away to Arabia. Three years, comes back, he's got this message. And he goes, guys, let me read this to you and see if it sounds right. And they're like, that's the same message we have. (laughs) Exact same message we have. Changed Paul's life forever. So let me set the stage and talk about these three verses briefly. And then I'll close with, with the thing that's got Paul so angry. And it's not merely hypocrisy. What's happened in these three verses is that Peter, who I want to believe is Jesus' favorite apostle, because I feel like I act like Peter. And so it's probably John, you know, probably John's the beloved one, but uh, I, Peter was impetuous, Peter was outspoken, he was a little loud, had a beard. He, um, I just, I, I tend to identify with Peter, and so Peter, this rock in the church, is in Jerusalem. He's with former Jews who are now Christians. There's been a big debate about how do people become Christians? What do they need to do in order to become Christians? Peter comes to Paul's churches in Antioch. He travels to southern Turkey. And while he's there, he gets greeted by this Christian community, and he falls in love with them, I imagine. He's like, oh, you guys are awesome. Oh, you women are incredible. And he starts having meals with them, and they start celebrating the Eucharist together, and and they're really getting along well. And then it starts to break down. Somebody from the old place tiptoes over and says, hey, Peter, um, the folks back home are a little disturbed that you're meeting with these Gentiles who haven't been circumcised, who don't know the Torah, and you're treating them like real Christians. And it's causing problems for us back home, Peter. And Peter's like, oh, really? Okay, I'm sorry. And so Peter pulls himself out of the church in Antioch, and he stops going to have meals with them, and he stops going to do communion, and he stops doing what Trip reminds us we do every week, these ancient things that we repeat and confess. He pulls himself out of the community. And that sets Paul on fire, but it doesn't push him over the edge. But that's what Paul is talking about this morning. When you behave in a way that looks contrary to what the church is supposed to be doing, you cause problems. You cause problems. But there's a deeper and a bigger problem that Paul wants Peter to understand. Because it's not that keeping the Torah or keeping kosher is going to solve the real problem, the curse. Paul knows about the curse. Paul knows the effect of sin. It would be like a couple that's having problems in their marriage. And one of them, heaven forbid, has been unfaithful. And they go to a marriage counselor, and the marriage counselor looks at them and goes, well, I can tell you what you need to do. You just need to start date night. You need to do date night once a week, and your marriage will get right back on track. Now, I know that seems a little silly, but that's the way Paul views anything except the cross of Christ. Anything other than Jesus and Jesus on the cross isn't going to fix the problem. A good counselor should look at a couple like that and say, repent, forgive each other, you know, start from zero. But date night isn't going to fix a a divorce any more than keeping kosher is going to get us saved, is going to get us saved. So here we go. I want to irritate you now. I've been trying to encourage you and make you smile. Now I want to irritate you because I want to get you in the place that Paul was in, okay? Okay. Uh, my wise wife, who's here this morning, when I asked her yesterday, I said, I, w- I want to put some pictures, and I told her about it. She said, don't do that. Um, how many of you are familiar with Westboro Baptist Church? 
Westboro Baptist Church is a small group of people who in the name of Jesus, they claim, and in the name of God, um, protest things around our country, specifically the thing that should annoy most of us here who have either been in the military or know someone in the military or have a child in the military is they go to military funerals and they hold up horrible hate signs. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go home and Google Westboro Baptist Church and then just Google images and look at the signs they hold up. I wanted to put some signs up and Sue wisely said, if you do that, they'll never ask you back. (laughs) I said, all right, I won't put the signs up. But the signs are vulgar, they're offensive, and they're disrespectful. They're disrespectful. And so if they were out front of St. Paul's this morning protesting a funeral, um, I would imagine that most of us in this place would be upset, angered, and probably we would run out there and confront them because they're sending the wrong message. God doesn't hate America fill in the blank. When you see those signs, you'll know what I'm talking about. But they're sending the wrong message. Do you know what I mean? Have you seen those signs that stir you up a little bit? Yeah, that's that's Paul and Peter. He's seen these signs and he's a little stirred up because it's perverting the truth. It's perverting the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. Remember Mary, remember in Easter when we read that Mary was the first person to get to the tomb after Jesus had been crucified and buried. And Mary goes to the tomb and she sees this man that she thinks is a gardener and she starts to cry. And, and through her tears and, and through her emotionalness, she, um, she looks at this person that she thinks is a gardener, it's actually Jesus, and she says, sir, if you'll just tell me where you've laid the body, because the tomb is empty, if you'll just tell me where you've laid the body, let, I'll go and get him and I'll, I'll anoint him and, and I'll care for him because Mary knew the truth. Mary had had a Thomas moment. My Lord and my God, you walk through that wall. You've got holes in your hands. You've risen from the dead. And Paul has too. Paul has too. He stands in that line of people who've had their heart circumcised, who've had their life changed. A change that takes your breath away that makes you want to come and serve. Not out of a sense of, well, I ought to go this morning, or I should do this, or Trip wrote a really nice letter, I'll respond. No, but like people who gave to this church out of, out of a circumcised heart, I want to, I need to. There is no life away from Jesus. There is no life away from Jesus. So Paul says, it's the only thing that'll remove the curse. It sets us free, he'll later say in Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Don't be yoked again by a slavery, the slavery of the law. Paul understands those things that we yoke ourselves with, they don't save us. They keep us under the curse. And my prayer this morning is, and I feel like most of you have, is that you've encountered Christ that way in your life. That you're not coming here out of obligation. You're not putting money in the plate out of obligation. You're not parenting. You're not loving your spouse or your friends out of obligation. You're doing it out of the only sign that matters. The Holy Spirit's been poured into you. You've said, yes, I believe the truth. I don't fully understand it. I'll confess, I'm wearing these cool clothes and I got a bunch of crosses and there are parts about my faith I don't understand. But I don't have to understand it to make it true. I don't have to understand it to make it true. Hear that. Jesus says this about a faith like that. This is what Jesus says. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. It's hidden in a field. And when a man or a woman find it, they hide it again. And then in their joy, they go and sell everything they have to buy that field. 
That's the kind of faith, brothers and sisters, that I want us to have. Last story, and then I'll close. I have a friend, his name is Don Spann, wealthy guy. He invented, are you ready for this, the egg crate mattress. Hasn't everybody in this room either touched or sat on or laid on an egg crate mattress? Come on. We've all done it. Okay. Don Spann invented the egg crate mattress, a chemist, a former Marine, and he uh, also invented the stuff that put out uh, uh, oil rig fires back before when they used to set off an explosion to snuff the fire out. Don came up with this safer way to do it. You put this chemical on it. So he's a brilliant guy, wealthy beyond measure, and a um, member of First Scots Presbyterian Church in Greenville. Don was a member. At 58 years old, he bought a very big boat like rich people do, and he was going to take his boat from Charleston down to the Bahamas to leave it for the winter. And he and his first mate decided they were going to be real sailors. My brother's back there. He's a real sailor. Mm-hmm. They were going to go outside, which means unlike me and others, they didn't putt, putt, putt down the intercoastal waterway safely. They were going to get out in the big ocean. And so they did. They left Charleston to Beaufort, Beaufort to Jacksonville, and got up the morning in Jacksonville. And the weather radio was saying, oh, the weather's bad. It's real bad. Uh, it's so bad that the real fishermen, the commercial fishermen, weren't going out. But Don, being a man of bravado, and a man of means said, you know what, we can do this. We've been on boats before. We'll just, we'll stay close to shore 20 miles and we'll, we'll go on this morning. So he and his first mate left at 4.30 in the morning out of Jacksonville Harbor, went out 20 miles, turned right, and started heading down the coast. Don decided he was up on the flybridge. I'm gonna get some coffee. Do you want some? No, thank you. On his way down, 58 years old, he fell into the ocean. 20 miles offshore, no life jacket, uh, no preparation, no coffee. And yeah. <laughs> As a person who has to have a cup of coffee first thing in the morning, I wouldn't have made it. Don makes it. So he, he falls overboard, and the last thing he remembers screaming was, stop, as the boat motored slowly out of sight. He's 20 miles offshore. His marine instincts kick in, takes his shirt off, makes that life jacket on. I, I hope if I ever fall over, I got somebody who knows how to do that. But he blows it up. And, he, and so for 50 minutes, Don treaded water and prayed to God. Out there 20 miles offshore in the dark, prayed to God. And what Don came to realize was there was nothing he could do to save himself. His marine training, his money, nothing was going to save Don. And at the last minute, when he was ready to give up and just drowned, he said he heard someone calling his voice, Don, Don. And the next thing he knew, his, his first mate was pulling him out of the water. What the first mate had done, brilliantly, um, was reset his GPS. He got about six miles away from where it happened, realized Don wasn't on the boat, and put in the coordinates to go back the same way he had come. And so he turned around, repentance, not really, turns around, he's headed back. You can't ever miss a chance to talk about turning around and repenting. Um, yeah. So he's, he turns around, he comes back, and this is, you know, this is, there's waves, and there's current, and there's wind, and there's all kinds of things that would keep him off course. But he came right back, had his light out, and found Don. Don's laying in the emergency room. Here's what I want you to remember about the story. Don's laying in the emergency room, and he looks up at his first mate, his good friend, and he says, thank you for saving me, and thank you for jumping in the water and pulling me out of the water. And the guy said, I didn't jump in the water and pull you out of the water. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, you, I turned around, got there, the ladder was down, you grabbed the ladder and jumped out like you'd only been in there a minute. That was the first miracle. But the second miracle, the most important miracle, was Don's revelation about what saved him and who saves him. Like I said, it wasn't his semi-regular church attendance. It wasn't the money that he had given to the church over time. It was completely and utterly the work of Christ and his work on the cross. His work on the cross. Because God is a God who says and does what he promises. 
He's a God that down through time has made covenants with various people, and he's kept those covenants. He promised that he would pour his spirit out one day, and Daniel, on all men. And so that's what's happening in the church. His spirit's being poured out. And it inaugurates the coming of the kingdom. So here's what I think Paul would say to you and I if he was standing here this morning. This is a quote from a book I'm reading this summer. It would say something like this, in love to Peter as well. I'm a Christian. We're Christians because Christianity names and addresses the problem of sin and the curse. Christianity names and addresses the problem of sin and the curse. It acknowledges the reality that the evil we observe in the world is also present within each one of us, brothers and sisters. That evil that we see out there is also present in our lives. And finally, it tells the truth about the human condition, the truth about the human condition, and this is it. We are not okay. Left to our own devices, left to our own righteousness, we are not okay. Don Spann, when he fell off the back of that boat, was not okay. He's a good guy, a generous guy, a father, an inventor, a marine. He'd done all kinds of things. A good guy. But Don Spann was not okay. Don Spann wasn't okay until he realized that he needed Jesus to save him. He needed Christ to come into his life to circumcise his heart and save him. And that's what I want you to hear this morning. If you've never, ever thought that seriously about Christ in your heart, if you've never thought that seriously about why you do what you do or why you don't do what you should do, um, if anything I've said this morning out of Scripture uh, is, is compelling you, um, see, see Tripp or me or John afterwards. Come, come up to us and say something like, I, something Gary said stirred me. My heart rate went up. My, you know, s- brothers and sisters, be saved. Be okay today. Let today be the day that you become okay. You shed being a good person. You shed being a person who's under the curse. And you become a person who is saved by faith. And by, most importantly of all, God's grace. God's grace. Amen? Amen.